Section 24 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 2, Jewish Heroes and Prophets, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. St. Paul, Part 3. It was probably at the close of the year 57 A.D. that Paul set out for Corinth, with Titus, Timothy, Sosthenes, and other companions. During the three months he remained in that city, he probably wrote his epistle to the Galatians and his epistle to the Romans, the latter the most profound of all his writings, setting forth the sum and substance of his theology, in which the great doctrine of justification by faith is severely elaborated. The whole epistle is a war on pagan philosophy, the insufficiency of good works without faith, the lever by which in later times Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Calvin, Knox, and St. Cyran overthrew a Pharisaic system of outward righteousness. In the Epistle to the Galatians, Paul speaks with unusual boldness and earnestness, severely rebuking them for their departure from the truth, and reiterating with dogmatic ardor the inutility of circumcision as of the law abrogated by Christ, with whom, in the liberty which he proclaimed, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female, but all are one in him. And Paul reminds them, a bitter pill to the Jews, that this is taught in the promise made to Abraham four hundred and fifty years before the law was declared by Moses, by which promise all races and tribes and people are to be blessed to remotest generations. This epistle not only breathes the largest Christian liberty, the equality of all men before God, but it asserts, as in the epistle to the Romans, with terrible distinctness, that salvation is by faith in Christ and not by deeds of the law, which is only a schoolmaster to prepare the way for the ascendancy of Jesus. I need not dwell on these two great epistles, which embody the substance of the Pauline theology received by the Church for eighteen hundred years, and which can never be abrogated so long as Paul is regarded as an authority in Christian doctrine. I return to a brief notice of Paul's last visit to Jerusalem, which was made against the expostulations of his friends and disciples in Ephesus, who gathered around him weeping, knowing well that they never would see his face again. But he was inflexible in his resolution, declaring that he had no fear of chains, and was ready to die at Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Why he should have persisted in his resolution, so full of danger, why he should again have thrown himself into the hands of his bitterest enemies, thirsty for his blood, we do not know, for he had no new truth to declare. But the brethren were forced to yield to his strong will, and all they could do was to provide him with a sufficient escort to shield him from ordinary dangers on the way. The long voyage from Ephesus was prosperous but tedious, and on the last day before the Pentecostal feast, in May, in the year 58 A.D., Paul for the fifth time entered Jerusalem. His meeting with the elders, under the presidency of James, the stern, white-robed ascetic, mysterious prophet, was cold. His personal friends in Jerusalem were few, and his enemies were numerous, powerful, and bitter, for he had not only emancipated himself from the Jewish law, with all its rites and ceremonies, but had made it of no account in all the churches he had founded. What had he naturally to expect from the zealots for that law but a renewed persecution? Even the Jewish Christians gave no thanks for the splendid contribution which Paul had gathered in Asia for the relief of their poor, nor was there any exultation among them when Paul narrated his successful labors among the Gentiles. They pretended to rejoice, but added, You observe, brother, how many myriads of the Jews there are that have embraced the faith, and they are all zealots for the law. And we are informed that thou teachest all the Jews that are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. 
there was no cordiality among the jewish elders of the christian community and deadly hostility among the unconverted jews for they had doubtless heard of paul's marvelous career jerusalem was then full of strangers and the jews of asia recognizing paul in the temple raised a disturbance pretending that he was a profaner of the sacred edifice the crowd of fanatics seized him dragged him out of the temple and set about to kill him but the roman authorities interfered and rescuing him from the hands of the infuriated mob bore him to the castle the tower of antonio when they arrived at the stairs of the tower paul begged the tribune to be allowed to speak to the angry and demented crowd the request was granted and he made a speech in hebrew narrating his early history and conversion but when he came to his mission to the gentiles the uproar was renewed the people shouting away with such a fellow from the earth for it is not fit that he should live and paul would have been bound and scourged had he not proclaimed he was a roman citizen on the next day the roman magistrate summoned the chief priests and the sanhedrim to give paul an opportunity to make his defense in the matter of which he was accused ananias the high priest presided and the roman tribune was present at the proceedings which were tumultuous and angry Paul, seeing that the assembly was made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and hostile parties, made no elaborate defense, and the tribune dissolved the assembly, but forty of the most hostile and fanatical formed a conspiracy, and took a solemn oath not to eat or drink until they had assassinated him. The plot reached the ears of a nephew of Paul, who revealed it to the tribune. The officer listened attentively to all the details, and at once took his resolution to send Paul to Caesarea both to get him out of the hands of the Jews, and to have him judged by the procurator Felix. Accordingly, accompanied by an escort of two hundred soldiers, seventy horsemen, and two hundred spearmen of the guard, Paul was sent by night, secretly, to the Roman capital of the province. He entered the city in the course of the next day, and was at once led to the presence of the governor. Felix, as procurator, ruled over Judea with the power of a king. He had been a freedman of the Emperor Claudius, and was allied by marriage to Claudius himself, an ambitious, extortionate, and infamous governor. Felix was obliged to give Paul a fair trial, and after five days the indomitable missionary was confronted with accusers, among whom appeared the high priest Ananias. They associated with them a lawyer called Tertullus, of oratorical gifts, who conducted the case. The principal charges made against Paul were that he was a public pest and leader of seditions, that he was a ringleader of the Nazarenes, the contemptuous name which the Jews gave to the Christians, and that he had attempted to profane the temple, which was a capital offense according to the Jewish law. Paul easily refuted these charges, and had Felix been an upright judge he would have dismissed the case. But supposing the apostle to be rich because of the handsome contributions he had brought from Asia Minor for the poor converts at Jerusalem, Felix retained Paul in the hope of a bribe. A few days after, Drusilla, a young woman of great beauty and accomplishments, who had eloped from her husband to be married to Felix, was desirous to hear so famous a man as Paul explain his faith, and Felix, to gratify her curiosity, summoned his distinguished prisoner to discourse before them. Paul eagerly embraced the opportunity, but instead of explaining the Christian mysteries, he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and retribution moral truth which even the intelligent heathen accepted, and as to which the consciences of both his hearers must have tingled. Indeed, he discoursed with such matchless boldness and power that Felix trembled with fear as he remembered the arts by which he had risen from the condition of a slave, and the extortions and cruelties by which he had become enriched, to say nothing of the lusts and abominations which had disgraced his career. 
However, he did not set Paul free, but kept him a prisoner for two years, in order to gain favor with the Jews, or to receive a bribe. Portius Festus, the successor of Felix, was a just and inflexible man, who arrived at Caesarea in the year 60 A.D., when Paul was fifty-eight years of age. Immediately the enemies of Paul, especially the Sadducees, renewed their demands to have him again tried, and Festus, wishing to be just, ordered the second trial. Again, Paul defended himself with masterly ability, proving that he had done nothing against the Jewish law or temple, or against the Roman emperor. Festus, probably not seeing the aim of the conspirators, was disposed to send Paul back to Jerusalem to be tried by a Jewish court. To prevent this, as at Jerusalem condemnation and death would be certain, Paul, remembering that he was a Roman citizen, fell back on his privilege, and at once appealed to Caesar himself. The governor at first, surprised by such an unexpected demand, consulted with his assistants for a moment, and then replied, Thou hast appealed unto Caesar, and unto Caesar shalt thou go. Thus ended the trial of Paul, and thus providentially was the way open to him, without expense to himself, to go to Rome, which of all cities he wished to visit, and where he hoped to continue, even under bonds and restrictions, his missionary labors. In the meantime, before a ship could be got in readiness to transport him and other prisoners to Rome, Herod Agrippa II, with his sister Bernice, came to Caesarea to pay a visit to the new governor. Conversation naturally turned upon the late extraordinary trial, and Agrippa expressed a desire to hear the prisoner speak, for he had heard much about him. Festus willingly acceded to this wish, and the next day Paul was again summoned before the king and the procurator. Agrippa and Bernice appeared in great pomp with their attendants. All the officers of the army and the principal men of the city were also present. It was the most splendid audience that Paul had ever addressed. He was equal to the occasion, and delivered a discourse on his familiar topics, his own miraculous conversion, and his mission to the Gentiles to preach the crucified and risen Christ. Things new to Festus, who thought that Paul was visionary, and had lost his balance from excess of learning. Agrippa, however, familiar with Jewish law and the prophecies concerning the Messiah, was much impressed with Paul's eloquence, and exclaimed, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. When the assembly broke up, Agrippa said, This man might have been set at liberty, if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Paul, however, did not wish to be set at liberty among bitter and howling enemies. He preferred to go to Rome, and would not withdraw his appeal. So in due time he embarked for Italy under the charge of a centurion, accompanied with other prisoners, and his friends Timothy, Luke, and Aristarchus of Thessalonica. The voyage from Caesarea to Italy was a long one, and in the autumn was a dangerous one, as in Paul's case it unfortunately proved. The following spring, however, after shipwreck and diverse perils and manifold fatigues, Paul arrived at Rome, in the year 61 A.D., in the seventh year of the Emperor Nero. Here the centurion handed Paul over to the prefect of the Praetorian Guards, by whom he was subjected to a merely nominal custody, although, according to Roman custom, he was chained to a soldier. But he was treated with great lenity, was allowed to have lodgings, to receive his friends freely, and to hold Christian meetings in his own house, and no one molested him. For two years Paul remained at Rome, a fettered prisoner, it is true, but cheered by friendly visits, and attended by Luke, his beloved physician and biographer, by Timothy and other devoted disciples. During this second imprisonment Paul could see very little outside the Praetorian barracks, but his friends brought him all the news, and he had ample time to write letters. He had no intercourse with gifted and fortunate Romans, his acquaintance was probably confined to the Praetorian soldiers, and some of the humbler classes who sought Christian instruction. 
but from this period we date many of his epistles on which his fame and influence largely rest as a theologian and man of genius among those which he wrote from rome were the epistles to the colossians the ephesians and many pastoral letters like those written to philemon titus and timothy we know but little of the life of paul after his arrival at rome for at this point st luke closes his narrative and all after this is conjecture and tradition but the main part of Paul's work was accomplished when he was first sent to Rome as a prisoner to be tried in the imperial courts, and there is but little doubt that he finally met the death he so heroically contemplated at the hands of the monster Nero, who martyred such a vast multitude of Paul's fellow Christians. At Jerusalem and at Antioch he had vindicated the freedom of the Gentile from the yoke of the Levitical law. In his letters to the Romans and Galatians he had proclaimed both to Jew and Gentile that they were not under the law but under grace. During the space of twenty years, Paul had preached the gospel of Jesus as the Christ in the chief cities of the world, and had formulated the truths of Christianity. What marvelous labors! But it does not appear that this apostle's extraordinary work was fully appreciated in his day, certainly not by the Jewish Christians at Jerusalem, nor does it appear even that his preeminence among the apostles was conceded until the third and fourth centuries. He himself was often sad and discouraged in not seeing a larger success yet recognized himself as a layer of foundations like our modern missionaries paul simply sowed the seed the fruit was not to be gathered until centuries after his death before he died as is seen in his second letter to timothy many of his friends and disciples deserted him and he was left almost alone he had to defend himself single-handedly against the capricious tyrant who ruled the world and who wished to cast on the christians the stain of his greatest crime the conflagration of his capital as we have said, all details pertaining to the life of Paul after his arrival at Rome are simply conjectural, and although interesting, they cannot give us the satisfaction of certainty. But in closing, after enumerating the labors and writings of this great apostle, it is not inopportune to say a few words about his remarkable character, although I have now and again alluded to his personal traits in the course of this narrative. Paul is the most prominent figure of all the great men who have adorned or advanced the interest of the Christian Church. Great pulpit orators, renowned theologians, profound philosophers, immortal poets, successful reformers, and enlightened monarchs have never disputed his intellectual ascendancy. To all alike, he has been a model and a marvel. The grand old missionary stands out in history as a matchless example of Christian living, a sure guide in Christian doctrine. No more favored mortal is ever likely to appear. He is the counterpart of Moses as a divine teacher to all generations. The popes may exalt St. Peter as the founder of their spiritual empire, but when their empire as an institution shall crumble away, as all institutions which are not founded on the rock, which it was the mission of the apostles to proclaim, Paul will stand out the most illustrious of all Christian teachers. As a man Paul had his faults, but his virtues were transcendent, and these virtues he himself traced to divine grace enabling him to conquer his infirmities and prejudices, and to perform astonishing labors, and to endure no less marvelous sufferings. His humanity was never lost in his discouraging warfare. He sympathized with human sorrows and afflictions. He was tolerant, after his conversion, of human infirmities, while enjoining a severe morality. He was a man of native genius, with profound insight into spiritual truth. Trained in philosophy and disputation, his gentleness and tact in dealing with those who opposed him are a lesson to all controversialists. His voluntary sufferings have endeared him to the heart of the world, since they were consecrated to the welfare of the world he sought to enlighten. 
as an encouragement to others he enumerates the calamities which happened to him from his zeal to serve mankind but he never complains of them or regards them as a mystery or as anything but the natural result of unappreciated devotion he was more cheerful than confucius who felt that his life had been a failure more serene than plato when surrounded by admiring followers he regarded every christian man as a brother and a friend he associated freely with women without even calling out a sneer or a reproach he taught principles of self-control rather than rules of specific asceticism and hence recommended wine to timothy and encouraged friendship between men and women when intemperance and unchastity were the scandal and disgrace of the age although so far as himself was concerned he would not eat meat if thereby he should give offence to the weakest of his weak-minded brethren he enjoyed filial piety obedience to rulers and kindness to servants as among the highest duties of life he was frugal but independent and hospitable he had but few wants and submitted patiently to every inconvenience he was the impersonation of gentleness sympathy and love although a man of iron will and indomitable resolution he claimed nothing but the right to speak his honest opinions and the privilege to be judged according to the laws he magnified his office but only the more easily to win men to his noble cause to this great cause he was devoted heart and soul without ever losing courage or turning back for a moment in despondency or fear he was as courageous as he was faithful as indifferent to reproach as he was eager for friendship as a martyr he was peerless since his life was a protracted martyrdom he was a hero always gallantly fighting for the truth whatever may have been the array and howling of his foes and when wounded and battered by his enemies he returned to the fight for his principles with all the earnestness but without the wrath of a knight of chivalry he never indulged in angry recriminations or used unseemly epithets but was unsparing in his denunciation of sin as seen in his memorable description of the vices of the romans self-sacrifice was the law of his life his faith was unshaken in every crisis and in every danger it was this which especially fitted him as well as his ceaseless energies and superb intellect to be a leader of mankind to paul and to paul more than any other apostle was given the exalted privilege of being the recognized interpreter of christian doctrine for both philosophers and the people for all coming ages and at the close of his career worn out with labor and suffering yet conscious of the services which he had rendered and of the victories he had won and possibly in view of approaching martyrdom he was enabled triumphantly to say i have fought a good fight i have finished my course i have kept the faith henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day end of section 24 end of beacon lights of history volume 2 jewish heroes and prophets by john lord